українці, українки. Щойно повернувся з Харківщини, з нашої Харківщини, з районів, які були звільнені. На сьогодні майже вся область деокупована. Це був безпрецедентний рух наших воїнів. Українцям знову вдалося зробити те, що багато хто вважав неможливим. A stunningly successful Ukrainian counteroffensive in Kharkiv Oblast in the northeast liberated an estimated 3,800 square kilometers of territory, an area roughly the size of the U.S. state of Rhode Island, in just two days as the Russian front line crumbled and troops retreated. The Ukrainian advance has not only captured key logistics and transportation hubs like Izum, hampering Russia's war effort in the east, but it also transformed the narrative of the war. Prior to the Kharkiv offensive, the assumption was that we would see a deadlocked, slow grinding war of attrition in the east that could last for years, giving Russia the opportunity to wear Ukraine down with artillery strikes and wear the west down by using energy supplies as a weapon. But in the aftermath of Kharkiv, there is now open talk that a Ukrainian victory is actually possible. So what does the view from inside Ukraine look like after Kharkiv? And where does the war go from here? Well, stick around because I got just the guests to unpack it all. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s Funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Kharkiv, Ukraine, is security expert Maria Avdieva, a non-resident expert at ISONS. Welcome to the Vertical, Maria. It's great to have you on. Hi, thank you for having me, Brian. Thanks for joining us. And also joining us from an undisclosed location in Ukraine is Volodymyr Dubovik, an associate professor at the Faculty of International Relations at Mieszkov National University in Odessa and director of its Center for International Studies. Welcome back to the Vertical, Volodymyr. Hello, Brian. Good to be oh, back. Good to have you. So, Maria, let's start with you since you're in Kharkiv, where, where a lot of the action is at the moment. What should we know about the Ukrainian offensive? How is it affecting the progression of the war, and how are Ukrainians in Kharkiv reacting to it? Well, this is one of the best military operations the Ukrainian army managed uh, to do so far. Uh, President Zelensky has just announced that uh, 6,000 kilometers uh, were liberated. Uh, and now only 6% of the uh, territory of Kharkiv region is occupied. Before, it was 34%. So that's the huge advance. And uh, just to give you an idea of how deeply Russia was occupying the territory and how their plans were, uh, it's necessary to say that Kupiansk, that was just recently liberated, was supposed to be the capital of the liberated Kharkiv region. Mm. So Russians have put their so-called governor of Kupiansk, of Kharkiv region, there, and they were waiting until the whole territory will be liberated. In normal mm. means, they wanted to capture all the territory of Kharkiv region. And so now with this progress of the Ukrainian army, everyone is praising and people are happy. Uh, I've been to the liberated area, uh, the area that was under Russian occupation for more than six months. It's the first time in whole history when Ukraine liberates areas that were so deep and so long mm -hmm. under Russian occupation. And people in that areas, they can't help tears. 
they are crying. Uh, you can clearly see that they are traumatized by that experience because they were completely cut off any kinds of communication. They did not know what was happening in Ukraine for six months because the Russians uh, usually cut off internet connections. They took out the phones from the people. Uh, there is no electricity. People are hiding in the basements. So when they, after six months, came out and saw Ukrainian soldiers, that they were literally shocked. And of course, they are happy to see them. Uh, it's a lot of work, huge work to be done because many uh, houses are completely destroyed. Much of them are damaged. People were living in the basements, not only because of the shelling, but because of the level of the destruction. But morale uh, of these people and Ukrainian army is very high. Everyone is very energized about this success and people are looking out for more. And also uh, they see that the Russians were not regrouping, as they say, but they were fleeing. They were leaving everything behind. You can clearly see that they were not ready. They couldn't prepare. Uh, so they just left from some territories and just left everything there. And this also gives uh, Ukrainians a sense that this, uh, the win in this war is possible and that we can push Russians further from Ukrainian territory. And we're also seeing evidence of, uh, just like we were seeing outside of Kiev, of evidence of war crimes uh, being committed in the Russian-occupied areas. Are you, are you coming across any, anything along those lines? Absolutely. And uh, the more uh, people will go uh, into the uh, recently liberated areas, uh, the more evidences we will see. Because for now, it's very limited places where you can actually visit because territory is so heavily mined that uh, you can move there only uh, in a, on a very limited uh, paths. Uh, you can clearly see mines, uh, anti-personal mines uh, laying everywhere in people's uh, courtyards. But uh, the police investigators, they already started investigation. The, uh, the, the uh, war crime I was witnessing uh, with the police is that uh, uh, the man, uh, one of the local residents of the village Grakova in March was told by the U Russian army soldiers to dig out the grave and put there two dead bodies. These bodies had uh, were shot uh, in the back of their heads and the ears were cut. Uh, so uh, he did that. And when the territory was liberated, he told the police, showed the place, and police was exhumating these bodies. Mm -hmm. And the police experts confirmed that they were tortured and that they were killed in their heads. And this is only one case in one small village. And then there are numerous other that people were tortured, uh, they were electrocuted, and there are a lot of people who are still missing. We don't know what happened mm. to them. So we, we will see much more when the time goes by. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm concerned about these missing persons. I received a petition today to sign to send to European officials uh, calling for an investigation of Ukrainians who have disappeared, uh, many of whom have been taken to Russia against their will. Um, right. Volodya, I know you're not a military analyst, but I also know you're a pretty smart guy who obviously has been keeping a close eye on developments in the East. What are your top-line takeaways from what we saw last week in, in Kharkiv, and how is it affecting the mood amongst people? Well, before uh, answering that, I would like to say that, of course, obviously, we're going to have a, a lot of war crimes discovered in the liberated areas yeah. where early days. Uh, 
uh, it was already suspected and expected that we're going to have uh, tons of butchers, little butcher yeah. towns in, in Kharkiv, and also, I'm afraid, in the south as well. Mm -hmm. And there's a problem. I mean, there was some media were reporting today, citing unnamed uh, uh, government official that in the city of Izum, they think is going to be around 1,000 people uh, dead in the summarily execution way. Uh, if that is the case, that's even more than Bucha. I mean, mm -hmm. but I, I suppose Izum is bigger than Bucha, I'm not sure, but still, I mean, and there will be, there'll be torture chambers found in each and every mm -hmm. town. I mean, that's, that's their modus operandi, you know, uh, they do this. So on your question, I think it's very important what's happening in Kharkiv. Mo morale and mood is high. Uh, people are spirited, uh, people are glued to the screens for a number of days, and people are definitely understanding, though, that we are paying a high price, and we are, in, in, in Donbass, in Kherson, and also Kharkiv Offensive, it's not a joyride for our military, so a lot of guys being killed and injured, we understand that, so the, it's a mixture of feelings then, the, the joy for the liberated areas, but also understanding that a lot of people are not coming back. I just found out for instance, a couple of days ago, that the guy who is a student at the Donetsk University, which is now located for a number of years in Vinitsa, uh, who just graduated from international relations school a uh, year ago, got killed there. So he's basically 23 years old, maybe Alexander Lachevsky. Uh, I met him a number of times when I did guest lectures in Vinitsa, and also he took part in like uh, security forums run by NATO. Uh, and uh, it, it could be actually that that he was in the room when Brian, when you were taking part in that event. I was just wondering about that because I participated yeah, could in be, one of those security could be. forums. Yeah. So it's a high price, but then still, you know, it's not just a matter of uh, uh, offensive, but how carefully it was prepared, how brilliantly it was planned and and disguised. You know, no, we didn't know about it uh, coming, frankly. Uh, and uh, somehow Russian intelligence probably picked up uh, the movement of Ukrainian troops and still ignored them. You know, and the other thing uh, that the matter of offensive, how quickly, and yeah. for the Russian troops, it's a route, you know. Yeah. It's not just they were pushed gradually. They were escaping in, in full panic mode, you right. know. That's what matters. And they know it, and everyone in Russia knows it, and, and everyone in Russian military knows it. And everyone in Kherson now is really, you know, trembling. Actually, there've been reports about uh, guys uh, sitting there on the, uh, that right bank of uh, Dnipro River in Kherson city, uh, who are really terrified. But what they're hearing from what happened in Kharkiv region, so it's a big deal. And of course, we're proving to everyone that we can not only def heroically defend the area and uh, bog the Russians down and defend areas and so on, and uh, you know being a meat grinder and not give up much land or, you know, make Russians pay a lot of price for, for their offensive, like it was in Lysychansk and Severodonetsk in Donbass. But we can actually go on offensive and use very creatively the, the, the weapons that they've given. So actually what we, I mean, we probably go back to this uh, subject, but I think it's very important uh, that a lot of allies for Ukraine are really being uh, inspired by what they saw in that offensive. Yeah, no, the effect here has been been been, been remarkable. Those that are saying we 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 uh we need to be careful and, and not give you know not ship so are, are, those voices are are temporarily at least silenced. Um, Maria, I want to actually get both of you on this, but I'll start with Maria on this because actually the Ukrainians kind of gave the Russians a taste of their own medicine with this uh, offensive in another way too, and that was with the the use of of Moskidovka. 
right? Mm -hmm. The Ukrainians were signaling and signaling and signaling. This is coming at Kherson. This is coming at Kherson. Um, Russia moved all its you know, great to redeploy troops to Kherson, and then boom, they hit in Kharkiv, surprising everybody. When I was reading the reports of this, at first I thought I saw it was a mistake. I was like, what? what Kharkiv? No, they're, they're supposed to be attacking in Kherson. Um, so you had this, this brilliant use of disinformation by the Ukrainians, which is a great turnaround, and also continued psyops. Like I was looking at reports turning out that turned out to be incorrect that the the, the, the Donetsk airport had fallen, that Ukrainian mm. troops had entered Donetsk city, um, had already taken Severodonetsk. Donetsk. That was not true, of course, but it was a, a brilliant use of psyops. Maria, what could you say about this? This Moskovka and these psyops that the Ukrainian uh, armed forces have been using. Yeah, You're brilliant smiling. information. Yeah, this is a brilliant information operation uh, made by Ukrainian military, and uh, we should praise uh, uh, the General Zaluzhny, the head of the general staff, uh, for that because uh, this was going from the general staff, and they first announced that the offensive will happen in Kherson, and everyone was tried to go there, especially media, and then there was this order that no media are allowed to the front lines, which turned to be a really good move because no one saw nothing and we uh, didn't know uh, co completely correct as uh, Volodymyr says we didn't know that this will be happening and this was a complete surprise for everyone and uh, this is the, just a brilliant example of how uh, you can manage uh, to to win the army that was uh, trying to conquer Ukraine in three days and now mm -hmm. uh, look at them running, uh, uh, you know, leaving everything behind. Uh, and this, uh, in this way, uh, I think this is the just the operation that will be quoted later mm -hmm. on uh, mm -hmm. in the books and will be uh, discovered and, you know, researched because this is a, a really great example of using information wisely. And also, I think what is important here we haven't, um, so it's not only happening here in the East, it's also con the continued uh, uh, very targeted uh, uh, strikes on uh, Russian supply lines in Kherson region. Mm -hmm. They were going on for months there already. And I think that the supplies of Western weapons, high precise, long range weapons, uh, makes it possible to hit the supply lines, to hit the depots of ammunition, and it also uh, was preparing the ground for this effective counteroffensive. So I would say that this is not something alone, but uh, combined several things all together, and probably we are not even seeing the end of this operation, and mm -hmm. we will see it continuing, and this is the hope that is here uh, in Ukraine. And I'm wondering, where does this go next? I mean, do we do, do, does the push in in in, in the Northeast continue? Um, again, there were those unconfirmed reports that turned out not to be true about Donetsk. But then again, at the end of the day, I mean, really, Kherson is the important kind of prize that Ukraine has to capture. Um, Volodya, that's uh, very important mm. to your your hometown right. of Odessa. Um, because that would basically you know, foreclose on a Russian ability to move along the, the Black Sea coast and, and potentially take Odessa, God forbid. Right. How, do you, how, do you, how do you look at that? Are you looking forward to, a, to, a, to, an, to an offensive in Kherson, or do you expect them to, to continue pushing in the north? I think both. I mean, uh, we'll be doing both. I mean, we have enough resources, and it seems like, uh, at least in terms of weapons, we do. 
And actually, in terms of Odessa, I think uh, Maria was uh, reasonably recently in Odessa. <laughs> she can speak about her experience there in the South. But um, also, I think uh, what's important that Kherson, of course, wasn't a faint. Uh, because a lot of people got this impression that, uh, you know, the whole idea of Kherson operation was to distract Russians from Kharkiv. And uh, no, Kherson is important operation in itself, an offensive, and just a different situation. I mean, the Russians were not that well digged in in the Kharkiv area, but they are extremely well digged mm -hmm. in, in Kherson. Mm -hmm. So it's very difficult. And they've been just brought a few reinforcements uh, in uh, near Kherson. And they really care about Kherson. It's so close, not just to Odessa, Mikolai, but also obviously to Crimea. And of right. course, if Ukrainians take Kherson, then Mariupol is under threat right away. But also coming from a Kharkiv direction, Mariupol is, uh, is coming mm. under threat. And that would be a terrible disaster for them if Ukrainians would be able to come closer to Mariupol, let alone liberating Mariupol. We all hope this will happen. Uh, that would be really undermining the denying them the only big reasonably big victory of the whole war you know they basically stood there for months and took mariupol with a lot of blood both ukrainian and russian blood if we somehow undermine their presence in mariupol that's definitely the game over for putin and uh, we've heard in recent days that russians actually haven't brought any fresh troops into donetsk uh, region and luhansk and kharkiv because they didn't have any so yeah. it's becoming a major problem for them, frankly. Yeah, yeah no, and they're, they're recruiting in prisons, offering yeah. prisoners. Yeah, Prigozhin is going around, yeah. yeah. Yes, yes. So, I mean, that, 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 that shows the level of the desperation. Right. I mean, I want to shift a little bit to this, I mean, Ukraine's relations with the West and like what, and what, how this war is now being viewed in the West. Because, quite frankly, before Kherson, the war had fallen off the front pages here in the U.S. I mean, it was still being covered, of course, but it wasn't leading the evening news anymore. Now, yeah, we got elections coming up in November, so that's that, that, and we got a lot of other things going on here. But for you know, from February into the spring, Ukraine was leading the news every single night. There was a there was the lead story in the New York Times and the Washington Post every day. Therefore, it was very much dominating the national conversation um, in a lot of ways. I mean. I mean, I, 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 former classmates of mine who I haven't seen in years were calling me, asking me, you know, what's going to happen in Ukraine? Or there were people who never really thought, I, you know, they might have, I, I, don't, I don't expect I'd ever thought about this before. Um, it had fallen off the front pages um, recently, but the offensive in Kharkiv really changed this. It's really back um, in, in, in our sights again. Um, it's always in my sights, but I'm talking about kind of the collective news consuming public. How concerned are Ukrainians at this moment that Western attention and Western commitment will fade? Uh, I don't know, Volodya, do you have any thoughts on that? I know you yeah. kind of focus on, on Ukrainian yeah. relations with the U.S. and the EU. Right. Yeah, we are concerned, of course, and we're seeing uh, some distraction here and there, which is obvious. Uh, that was to be expected, unfortunately. Maybe not all, not all Ukrainians understand uh, that it's going to happen, but I understood right away in, early in the war that it's not going to, the level of interest and engagement going to go down slightly, slowly here and there. Uh, that's only natural. I mean, you look at the US, you had uh, those decisions by Supreme Court, uh, you had this uh, January 6 investigations, you have upcoming. Uh, midterms and so on so so many things right mm -hmm. and also of course of course uh, you are you still a global power and a superpower so they have interests here and there and, and the china direction is very important right. so it, to me it's understood uh, completely but uh, yes in that particular respect the successful Kharkiv offensive operation 
is again very useful, uh, bringing uh, the news back and proving that Ukraine is still in the game. You know, we still have a chance of actually turning this thing around, maybe already doing that, turning the tables on Russians and recapturing initiatives. And again, I mean, uh, at some point in the, in, in the spring, uh, we had some euphoria, which turned out to be maybe premature from some of our friends, including American friends, including uh, Blinken and, and say Austin, who were saying that Ukraine is winning already, you know, and saying things like uh, they need to weaken Russia as much as they can. Uh, and they kind of regretted those statements, I think. But now again, we're hearing like, okay, you know, you see, Ukraine has a chance. And that's, a, that's good news for us and for everyone in the world supporting Ukraine. I mean, I'm not sure those statements were, they, okay. they they regret those statements, actually, because I think, I mean, there's a debate going on here in the U.S., right? And okay. there's a debate going on in Europe. And there are, there, in some quarters, there's, there's uh, you know, people arguing that we should push Ukraine to make concessions in exchange for peace. Right. Um, and, you know, when I hear these things coming out of, you know, places like France, I, I would like to ask, like, what parts of France do you want to give to Russia in, in the interest of peace? <laughs> they're, they're very generous with Ukraine's territory. Um, but by making these arguments that Ukraine is winning or can win, I think that is, I, I, I'm thinking that this is designed to undercut that argument. Why would you sue for peace when you're winning? Right. So I think that's that's also uh, what's going on here. And even as the as the war fell off the front pages, of course, the the weapons deliveries continued. The intelligence sharing continued. Um, Secretary Blinken made his surprise visit to Kiev. Um, how do you see this, Maria? How do you see the the the, the concerns over over the, the the sustainability of Western attention and support? Well, now uh, all the Western media, all the big media are here in Kharkiv, and of course this is good that the coverage for the war is growing again, because uh, you are completely right, Brian, there was this fear that uh, in September when uh, people will return from their summer vacations, Ukraine will be, uh, will go from the front pages somewhere to the, you know, to the, uh, uh, to the other uh, uh, areas uh, of their interest, but no, that, that this didn't happen and this is a very good sign for us because uh, Ukraine needs the, the support as much as it needed it at the beginning of the invasion. Because uh, the general staff uh, had General Zaluzhny in his latest article, he says that uh, mm -hmm. this war will be ongoing, it will not end up soon and we will, we will have to be ready for this. And we will need all kind of support, ongoing support throughout this uh, months, uh, winter months that will be really tough for Ukraine. Uh, just recently, uh, Russia has attacked uh, the two major power plant stations yes. around Kharkiv. Uh, yesterday and today, the uh, water works were attacked in Krivirih, uh, which will continued, which will be continued. So this is now clearly the Russian tactics to target critical infrastructure facilities and create humanitarian crisis all over Ukraine. So the winter will be very hard for people right. here. Yeah. And uh, people uh, in the West should understand that uh, this uh, progress, which we have now, was possible also because of the help and of the support, but we will need more because Russia will attack more brutally. Yeah. They are now not hiding behind saying that they attack all it, only uh, military objects. They openly admit attacking civilian infrastructure, mm -hmm. saying uh, for the whole world, yes, we are 
war criminals, but we will continue to do what we are doing. And for this, uh, we we will, will need all kinds of uh, of uh, weapons because weapons are will be also used to defend people in Ukraine to defend civilians. Right. Yeah, and I think there is going to there is a shift now from purely de- like the de- defensive weapons to to offensive weapons. The the, the right. talk now in Washington is about tanks and fighter jets. You know, yeah. God, I remember when it was about javelins, right? And you do mm-hmm. too. And then about he- HIMARS, and, and, and then about attackums. Now we're talking about tanks. I mean, we're not there yet, but we're ta- at least I'm watching the trajectory of this uh, of this conversation, and it, it is moving in the right direction. I mean, a, a lot of us, myself including, is included, is making the argument that. The, the geopolitical payoffs of a Ukrainian victory are actually enormous. This isn't just about Ukraine. It's primarily about Ukraine, of course. But a Ukrainian victory could lead to what I call, what I argued in a, in a piece this week in foreign policy, the second liberation of Eastern Europe. Right. Uh, we could see a 1989 moment. We could see a free Belarus. We could see Russia's d- influence in places like Georgia and Moldova severely diminished. Right. And so, we, so the, 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 this could really remake the security map of, of Europe. Volodya, I know you, since you focus really a lot on U.S.-Ukrainian relations, I want to drill down into, into, into that relationship right now. What's on the Ukraine's wish list from the U.S.? Um, what does Ukraine need from the U.S. right now that it's not getting at the moment? Well, it's, it's a lot. I mean, we're getting a lot of things, though. I mean, uh, I'm one of those guys who think that we actually should be grateful for what we're getting, and we're getting a lot. And uh, underappreciating this or not ma- not noticing the support, uh, it's not right. Even in the Kharkiv agree, uh, offensive, we now find out that uh, American military was involved in planning, as well as British. And uh, we now have some information about this war games and various scenarios yep. put in the table for Zelensky. And they started planning early in the summer, so months ago uh, already for both Kherson and Kharkiv. And uh, that's uh, telling a lot. And you, sh- you mentioned intelligence sharing, which is more and more of it. You know, early in the war, there was still some reluctance on Pentagon's part. Uh, but then later in the game, I mean, they've they've actually started to share more and more and more. So, and of course, we know that's one of the highest points of the war, the sinking of uh, cruiser Moskva. You know, we know also that Americans were involved in helping us actually to to do that uh, in a way. So, I mean, it's very important. I mean, uh, the 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 assistance we're getting and uh, the cooperation we're getting and. Uh, just the one of the last days, say September 8th, several days ago, uh, on this day, Blinken comes to Kyiv. And uh, basically, the whole visit tells us and shows us there is a friendly uh, atmosphere, there is a trust between the countries. And not only he comes to Kyiv, he also goes to Irpin, the, the suburb of Kyiv, which was heavily damaged uh, in the first months of the war. He also goes to hospital, visits some victims there. He even met the famous, uh, you know, mind-finding dog yes, patron. Yes. So, I mean, I really like the whole atmosphere. You know, it's really like between the France, you know, such visions take place. But on the same day, Secretary Austin of Defense, he speaks at Rammstein for, at the contact uh, group on defense of Ukraine. Uh, uh, you know, yeah, right. Contact group defense of Ukraine, yes. Uh, and uh, he's saying we are, should be there for Ukraine in the long haul. Mm-hmm. So we're not even talking about weeks or months. We're not yeah. even talking about this war. I mean, right. after this war is over, yes, still there should be support for Ukraine. And uh, also on the same day, Biden talks on video line uh, to leaders of EU, NATO, and G7, 
and the whole same message, same message. Mm -hmm. So they're just doubling down, doubling down the whole message, and that's very important. I think I I didn't see anything remotely close to how much U.S. leadership you actually have in the world affairs, like you did in the recent months. Yeah, I know it is pretty remarkable to watch this um, from 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 this side as well. How concerned are you, Volodya, about? I mean, we know it's no, it's an open secret here in Washington that there's this ongoing debate uh, going on between the National Security Council and the State Department about how much support to give Ukraine and how how aggressive we should be in this regard. Uh, Secretary Blinken and the State Department obviously are are strong proponents of of arming Ukraine and and, and giving the maximum amount of this assistance. Uh, National Security Advisor. Jake Sullivan in the NSC, of course, is a little bit more cautious on this, um, if, if we can believe what we see kind of bubbling out in the leaks here. We got midterm elections coming up, and while right. you, support for Ukraine has been bipartisan, there are fringe, you know, there are people yeah. on the far right and the far left yeah. that are that are, are not really supportive, to, to put it mildly, are not supportive of this. Um, we see right. Tucker Carlson on Fox News, you know, basically arguing the Russian side. As somebody who's kind of studied America your whole life, how do you, how how concerned are you about all of this? I am, but before I uh, I provide the answer, I've I've noticed you said that Jake Sullivan is of course more cautious. What did you mean by saying of course? I just say uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, well, yeah, I guess he's been known for being more cautious as a, you know as a, someone has to be. Uh, frankly, if everyone rushes uh, into this, okay, let's give everything we have to Ukraine, then indeed, uh, you know, if something turns wrong, uh, the, the, there'll be some responsibility for this administration. You know, someone who lives through Afghanistan and uh, withdrawal from Kabul, you know, they got to be more cautious now. He is uh, the guardian of, of the president in many ways, so he has to be cautious. But that's interesting, this debate that they're having. And also, where Austin fits here, I think he's more on the Blinken side, actually. Yes, he is. In, in, in many ways, yes. But, um, you know, a president trusts all of those people, frankly. So it's, it's, a, it's a, not a unique administration, but interesting in the way that it's a very coherent team in many ways. And there is no this major contradictions yeah. between different players in, around, around Biden. And Biden remains the decider, as George Jr. used right. to say. Yes, <laughs> you know, and that's interesting. But uh, I, I think with the midterms coming up, I'm reasonably optimistic. I don't see Trumpist wing of Republican Party gaining the upper hand, uh, you know. And uh, most of the Democratic Party will be still lining uh, behind Biden with his approach. So even if uh, you know Democrats lose control of both chambers of the Congress, it wouldn't mean that suddenly the opponents of a massive uh, large-scale support to Ukraine would have an upper hand in numbers. No, I think there will still be a, a minority, at least for the coming, you know, let's say yeah. half a year ahead of us, maybe a year. But we'll, we'll see what happens next. Yeah, no, this is one of those rare issues where there, there is bipartisan support, which is uh, there, there, those those issues in this city are shrinking and shrinking by the day, but Ukraine remains to be one of them. Maria, any any thoughts on your end about concerns about how this is playing out in the U.S. and, and the, 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 the prospect for continued sustained well, U.S. support? The, the, the recent uh, the, the recent developments uh, show that uh, the U.S. Uh, together with Ukraine and other allies are, are sending a very clear signal to Putin, which is very important. And the, this signal is that Ukraine will not be left alone. And uh, as Putin only understands the power 
because uh, he only uh, shows the power and that the only language he speaks. The, seeing this, uh, that for this uh, all these six months, uh, not uh, the, the the support from the West was not getting less, but uh, on the contrary, we are getting more and more. And his efforts uh, that Russia was putting into uh, breaking down the uh, the level of support and uh, the information influence that they have put right. into the pushing the narratives uh, that the support uh, the, to diminish the support and to undermine it are not working. And this this clearly shows Russians that this strategy is not working, and they have to deal with all the all countries of the allies with ukrainian allies all together this is yeah. important and this this will work as a strategy what about europe maria this is i mean i'm i'm actually a little bit more concerned europe is going to be facing a a rough winter energy wise um and this is putin's play clearly um you continue to have some calls from some european capitals for negotiations um, and a negotiated end um, before Ukraine has liberated all its territory. Um, how do you view? How do you? How do you view the the the, the support from Europe? Are are you how concerned are you there? We can uh, look at the example of Germany, which uh, was not supplying any weapons before the full-scale invasion, and it was out of the discussion. But now, look at what is happening. The more and more weapons are coming from Germany and the uh, rhetorics have completely changed and the, now the question if uh, is when the the new weapons will be supplied and I have been to the uh, army units which have received German Haubitzer 2000 and they showed mm -hmm. how they are used and this changed immediately the situation on the front mm -hmm. lines because this allows soldiers to uh, to 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 hit and to uh, strike the uh, objects which they were not able to do uh, before. So uh, the, the, all of this shows us that there is a support. Uh, it doesn't happen as quickly as we would like it to do. But what is important, and that was stated when all the uh, uh, so when Macron and the uh, uh, Schultz and the Italian uh, Prime Minister were in Kiev, and all of them said that this this is a, a only uh, so Ukraine will only get support. This is out of the question that. Uh, any kind of concessions are, are mm. so they want Ukraine any kind of concessions to be made. So I think this is a Russian game, as you put it, uh, very uh, so in the right way, and that's uh, what they try to uh, push and what they try to to play on. But uh, we we have to look at the facts, and the facts, for example, with the Germany is that the supply of German uh, weapons are growing. This is the fact. Well, so you're looking at the glass being half full, much like Volodya is looking at, rather than looking at the glass being half empty. Volodya, would you agree on Europe? Yes, I am. I, I actually cautiously optimistic, and uh, my expectations have been exceeded on Europe. I thought they would be fledgling my more, much more by this time. But uh, look, uh, in, in Germany, by the way, because of Kharkiv uh, offensive being successful, uh, there is a change of atmosphere in the government, and we are hearing noises about them actually being ready to supply now much more of those mm -hmm. weapons that they actually uh, held on uh, previously. Uh, and look at the EU. I mean, EU, which was often laughed, uh, uh, you know, uh, about and as being uh, incapable of anything, indecisive, and so on. 
look not just at the statement of the union uh, recent uh, by Ursula von der Leyen, uh, but also what she does. I mean, uh, she is really following her rhetorics with a very tough mm-hmm. position on Russia and supporting Ukraine. And the European Union is even given money to Ukraine to buy weapons. Yep. Think about it for a moment. The European Union, which has been a, a dovish kind of a structure for years and years, now giving money to Ukraine to buy weapons. And they also send money, obviously, for IDPs and refugees and other things. Mm-hmm. And on energy, their game has been amazing. I mean, that the Europe actually have all of this uh, reservoirs of the natural mm-hmm. gas full now. And so the, basically the Russian bluff and Russian leverage and Russian pressure there, blackmail is not working anymore. I mean, now Europe is laughing about Putin trying. Yes, the prices are high, obviously. That's a yeah, problem. And that's going to be yeah. a problem. Yeah, and the governments and we will got work elections with, coming and up. The governments will work on this and they'll give some uh, giveaways and give some money and support to the public, uh, uh, you know, and the corporations and individual families and so on. But other than this, it's basically a major failure, major failure for Putin that he is not, he's losing this leverage now, even in terms of oil and gas. So yeah. I think you, I think Europe has done, actually has dealt a really good blow and it's done really reasonably well. Yeah. And I actually think if Europe can get through this winter, they're going to end up yeah. in a very yeah. good place energy-wise when this is over, because by necessity, it was forcing them to do what they should have been doing all, all, already, and what the, the Poles and the Lithuanians and others exactly. in Eastern Europe were saying they should do. Well, that's a good way to segue to our second half. In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and look at a new proposal for long-term security guarantees for Ukraine that was released this week and has Moscow squawking, threatening, and sp- Speaking in very apocalyptic terms. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Powerful Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from part of Ukraine is security expert Maria Avdieva, a non-resident expert at ISANS, and joining us from an undisclosed location in Ukraine is Volodymyr Dubovik. An associate professor in the Faculty of International Relations at Mieszkov National University in Odessa and director of its Center for International Studies. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power of the Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Дякую всім нашим воїнам, дякую кожному і кожній, хто бере участь в рятувальних операціях після російських ударів. Відповімо терористам на кожну їхню подлість, на кожну ракету, на кожен снаряд. Ми це можемо. Слава Україні! So Andrei Yermak, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky's chief of staff, and Anders Fogh Rasmussen, the former secretary general of NATO, jointly presented a set of recommendations on security guarantees for Ukraine this week. The report does not suggest that NATO countries provide troops to defend Ukraine in the future, but it does propose what it calls a multi-decade effort of sustained investment in Ukraine's defense industrial base, scalable weapons transfers, and intelligence support from allies, intensive training missions, and joint exercises under the European Union and NATO flags. Rasmussen said... And I'm quoting, the adoption of these recommendations will send a powerful signal to Vladimir Putin. This would show that our loyalty to Ukraine will not waver, that his war is futile. 
Russia, of course, reacted absolutely hysterically. Uh, Leonid Slutsky, the chair of the State Duma's Committee on International Affairs, said Western countries risk a confrontation with a nuclear-armed Russia. And Dmitry Medvedev's reaction was even more unhinged. The former president and prime minister and the current deputy secretary of the Security Council said, if Ukraine continues to be pumped full of weapons, then sooner or later the military campaign will go to another level with unpredictable actions by the opposing sides. Everything will catch fire around them as well. Their people will be devastated. The earth will literally burn and concrete will melt. Um, oh <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that, that's no. that's medvedev. That's no. medvedev. Um, no. Too much at that point. Yeah, I, I probably think so. Uh, but, but the reaction to this was absolutely hysterical. And what's interesting about this, and I, I'd be interested to hear both of your takes on this, um, is that, I mean, this looks good. I like it. But it really isn't providing Ukraine security guarantees. A security guarantee is, a, is something like an Article 5 guarantee. Um, that countries will come to your aid in the event of aggression. This is nothing. It's 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 a long-term plan to continue to arm Ukraine um, and, and, to, and to train Ukrainian soldiers. But how do you how do you view this uh, this proposal? Yeah. That... Well, I mean, I can do a whole lecture and course on this, but let's uh, be brief here. <laughs> uh, I, I like the whole discussion. I mean, because obviously yep. this discussion needs to be had. Uh, because uh, living in Ukraine at the mercy of Russia is not an option anymore. We understand it in Ukraine, and our friends in the West understand it as well. Uh, Ukraine becoming member of NATO anytime soon uh, is also probably not going to happen. So we need to think about what 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 going to happen. What can provide us with some reasonable security? And I think the militarization of Ukraine, you know, so bringing in the, at the core. The, the better readiness and capabilities of Ukrainian military forces, assisted by willing members uh, of NATO and other countries outside of NATO, because countries like Australia and New Zealand are also helping out, mm. for instance, you know, uh, uh, is, is a solution as we go forward. So first of all, Ukrainian military, which is now experienced, uh, has more confidence. I mean, obviously, better, you know, hammered and shattered by, by war, but still, uh, the generals and officers are much more confident. They know how to fight Russia better. Russia is definitely weakened, and there will be a long time before they actually reassemble, would be able or capable of reassembling the same force that they had prior to this invasion. So, yeah, let's have the discussion with Rasmussen. That's one venue. Uh, there is also Yermak uh, McFall group, you know, mm -hmm. Michael McFall, obviously, whom we know. Uh, who is a former ambassador of the U.S. states in Russia, but also a, a, a staff worker in the Obama administration, National Security Council. They're working as well. McFall from someone who was a major architect of Reset with yeah. Russia back in 2009 has now turned into the major Yeah, hog. yeah, yeah. Mike's got religion, man. <laughs> yeah, he's now the major hog there. So anyway, so that's a good discussion. I mean, any, everyone will provide something. Yes, unfortunately, we're not going to have Article 5. But at least we're not going to have another Budapest memorandum. We're going to be halfway between those two and hopefully closer to Article 5 than to Budapest. I'm not sure about the Article 5 thing, Volodya, actually, because I've been thinking a lot lately about what happens the day after. What happens when this is over? Right. What do we do? There's no going back to the status quo ante of the pre-February 24th world. That is not happening. Right. And I think we in the West, and again, this is an argument I made in my foreign, foreign, foreign policy piece this past week, 
Um, we in the West cannot suffer from a failure of imagination on this. I mean, we're going to have, in the event of Ukrainian victory, a free Ukraine, obviously. We potentially could have a free Belarus. We could have a Georgia and Moldova that are where Russian influence is severely curtailed. And what does the West do with this new security environment? I mean, I think there are going, there is going to be pressure to for another enlargement of NATO. I just think this is inevitable. And looking at how the Ukrainians are fighting, I recall the old joke in Kiev in the early days of the war: instead of Ukraine joining NATO, NATO should join Ukraine. Well, I mean, as a citizen of a NATO country, I I, I certainly want Ukraine, and I think they would be a huge asset to the alliance. And I think showing that every single day right now so i would i would not like rule out i mean i think we're going to be in a whole new world when this war is over uh, maria what are your thoughts on this on the on the, yeah, on, the, on, the uh, on the security guarantees and the whole the whole discussion i think this is symbolical meaning as i said but i like brian your point about this is a long-term plan to arm ukraine because this is what is needed now the most while the war is ongoing, Ukraine needs more arms and then it needs them now. And uh, this is what pieces putting off uh, all this uh, uh, all this unity, because uh, that was uh, he was all the time uh, speaking about before he invaded Ukraine, that NATO is close. We have to defend ourselves and to defend ourselves, we have to attack Ukraine first. And uh, these uh, guarantees and this, uh, what these talks uh, show him that the West will not like watch while he goes further if he does it, because the uh, these all threats with the nuclear, with tactical nuclear weapons, with uh, you know we will erase Ukraine uh, to, uh, and completely and everything uh, that we hear from the. Uh, uh, top Russian leadership. Uh, this only not th this this go uh, goes not only for Ukraine but also for Baltic states. Don't yeah. forget that the Russian propaganda media all the time speculate the uh, attack on the Baltic states. And uh, why wouldn't Putin try and see what the Article Five, uh, how it will mm. work in this uh, situation? And uh, this kind of guarantees and this kind of talks and this kind of unity show uh, Putin and people in Kremlin that uh, th they will not go you know, uh, uh, further and uh, they will be stopped here. And uh, uh, this is a, a good reason to arm Ukraine and this is the good reason to help to continue supporting Ukraine so that Putin will be stopped here on this border and uh, do not uh, move further. And uh, if these guarantees uh, will in fact uh, work uh, how they like a plan to, uh, I doubt that, but uh, uh, I'm completely with you on the point that after the war is over, uh, there will be a completely different world order and completely different security uh, architecture uh, plan for Europe and generally for the world. And uh, we, we have, now we have to think about how it will be uh, done. But uh, of course, it won't work uh, the same as it, it was before the uh, full-scale invasion. Yeah, I mean, this 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 proposal basically came out of the, the, the working assumption going into it, as I understand it, was that it was like, what can the West do for Ukraine short of NATO membership? 
assuming that NATO membership is off the table. And and I'm 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 glad this discussion is going on. But I again, I don't think we should suffer from a failure of imagination here in what the world can look like when this is over. I think we're going to see a um, an upgraded security architecture is what I think. I don't think NATO is going anywhere. I think it'll be the main guarantor of security in Europe. I just think it's going to be a little bit bigger um, when this is when this is all uh, said and done. Do either of you have anything you want to add before? And, I, and Maria, your point is well taken that you this can this can be stopped dead in its tracks in Ukraine. I mean, this is just Ukraine was just the beginning. Every Russian empire starts with Ukraine. No Russian empire ends with Ukraine. And I think there's a realization of this um, in the West. Um, and I think Putin wanted to put the Soviet Union back together this year in the 100th anniversary of its founding in 1922. Um, the yeah. reverse looks like is going to happen. We're, we're witnessing 100 years after the Soviet Union's founding, the last stage of its breakup in a lot of ways. And Ukraine, just like Ukraine precipitated the first stage of the breakup by declaring independence in 1991, um, it's, it is going to be, I think, you know, precipitating the second stage. Volodya, Maria, do you guys have anything you want to add before we wrap it up as I'm watching the clock attentively? Yeah, I mean, on Putin, uh, I had to finish with this guy, but, uh, uh, well, first of all, we need to finish with this guy. <laughs> uh, he needs to be finished anyway, but uh, seriously, uh, he is not getting anything he wanted out of it, except for if he wanted to kill a lot of Ukrainians, he's doing that, and destroying Ukrainian economy, he's doing that. But other than this, geopolitically, in terms of Russian interests and Russian power and Russian power projection, force projection, he is failing dramatically. He's also going to turn 70 soon, you know, if he lives to that day. Uh, and also, uh, he is not going to get any nice surprises and gifts uh, for this, uh, you know, jubilee of his. Uh, in terms of NATO, by the way, no one in Ukraine is now talking about uh, completely forgetting about a NATO membership perspective. We talked about it early before the February 24th and in early days of after February 24th. And we found out the other day, actually, that uh, the Cossack, uh, one of the advisors of Putin, yes. has actually put up a plan. And he delivered the information to Putin that Ukrainians are ready to make a pronouncement that they're not going to be joining NATO. But at that point of time, Putin obviously said, who cares? Uh, it doesn't matter anymore. We're going full in. Uh, but uh, now, that when, when, when the victory of Ukraine is palpable and visible and can be real in, in the coming months, uh, you know, uh, who knows? Who knows? I think Ukraine is a lot of people in the NATO now think that Ukraine, if it becomes a member, if it becomes a member, it becomes the most uh, strong, resilient and battle ready and capable yeah. member of the alliance. Yeah, no, I mean, I see Ukraine being stronger and more resilient than many current NATO members, oh, by yeah. the way. Oh, yeah. Maria, first time on the podcast, you get the last word. This war made people in Ukraine and in Kharkiv and everywhere where I've been more resilient and more ready to fight than ever. Everywhere I speak to people on the streets, they say that we need victory, and victory for Ukraine is to get all the territories that are temporarily occupied back. And I want that uh, that everyone understands it and realizes it, because I have spoken to numerous people in Kharkiv, which is a largely Russian-speaking region, 40 mm -hmm. kilometers yes. from Russian border, all the time very closely connected before the war started with right. Russia. And no, I, I haven't seen from any, haven't heard from anyone.
one that people will say we are ready for concessions or we are ready for talks. Mm -hmm. No, everyone says that we need a victory because we have already paid a very high price and we are ready to fight until everything will be liberated and we will regain the territories. So that is a very important point that I want everyone who is listening to us for, to understand that Ukraine will not go for any kind of concessions and no, nothing can change that. And the, the more, uh, the quicker we gain the victory, uh, the more lives we will save and uh, the, the, the more uh, happy all of us will become. Yeah, yeah. yeah from, from your lips to God's ears. And we should not be pressuring Ukraine to make any concessions. And if, if we do, I'll, I'll, a lot of us will be screaming from the rooftops in opposition to that. And on that note, we shall wrap it up for this week. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you that you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Kharkiv, Ukraine, has been security expert Maria Avdeva, a non-resident expert at ISANS. And joining us from an undisclosed location somewhere in Ukraine has been Volodymyr Dubovik, an associate professor in the Faculty of International Relations at Meshnikov National University in Odessa and director of its Center for International Studies. Thank you both for an enlightening discussion. Thank you, Brian, for having us. Thank you. And I'd also like thank to thank you. Thank you. It was great. And I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Ligas is in the virtual control room, keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Dylan Holder handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn if you do please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.